All right, I'll invite invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 20. We are moving on this morning uh, past the millennium itself. We've done our teaching on the millennium itself. Uh, um, We spent last week talking about the Millennial Temple, the week before that talking about all of the different other prophetic connections to the Old Testament, the week before that actually expositing the passage of Scripture. We are going to do very much the same thing with the second half of Revelation 20. This week we are going to exposit this particular passage of Scripture. And then over the next two weeks, we are going to explore the topic of Gog and Magog. What Gog and Magog may be, where they might be from, all of the elements of Gog and Magog. Next week we'll explore the actual passage where things are taught. The week after that we'll get into a little bit more of the surmising and questioning as, to, as, as it relates to what Gog and Magog or who Gog and Magog might be. Uh, this morning, however, we do move on to, to this second portion of the Revelation 20. The 1,000 year reign of Christ upon this earth is coming to a close. And the scenario as it plays out is that there was a contingency of humans, mortal humans, who did not die within the scope of the, uh, the, the events of the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, and they share this attribute of mortality, of course. They enter into the millennial kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. These humans still have a sin nature but are no longer surrounded by the effects of the curse upon the world. No longer plagued by the temptations and accusations of Satan because he has been bound in chains and put in the bottomless pit for the 1,000 years. As best we can tell, there is still sin in the millennium because these men and women have sin natures, but it is dealt with swiftly and completely. And we talked about what that might look like a couple of weeks ago in Zechariah 14. It is possible, even likely, that all of the first generation that entered into the Millennial Kingdom entered in as believers. Uh, We talked about why that might be and and a couple of the scenarios that might allow unbelievers to enter into the Millennium uh, uh, as unbelievers, though certainly aligned with um, the uh, willing to submit themselves to the judgments of Jesus Christ. These men and women whether believers or or a mixed multitude, as it were, have children. And their children have children. And their children's children have children. And this takes place for 1,000 years. Now, within 1,000 years of time, a population can grow significantly, particularly when the general effects of destruction are not in play. When you don't have wars... To destroy entire generations of men, entire generations of families, um, your population is going to grow faster. It's quite possible even, we didn't really talk about this as it related to the millennium, and and I'll explain why uh, later on in our our studies, uh, not today, but later on uh, another day. It's even possible that people are not going to feel the degenerative effects of, of aging, within the millennium. Why might we think this? Well, there's one particular passage of Scripture that alludes to this, although it seems to allude to it at the wrong time. That's the one I'll talk about later. However, if no animal would dare, (coughs) excuse me, would dare harm in God's holy mountain so that the child can play on the hole of the the snake and and, um, so that the lion would lie with the lamb, then would anything dare kill would, there, would, would, would the elements dare degenerate human flesh? 
Would, would the UV light dare to degenerate the human flesh while Jesus is ruling and reigning in righteousness? So we don't quite know how that all is going to play out. However, what we, what, what we might surmise is that people uh, perhaps are going to live longer or live entirely through the millennium. Uh, thus, uh, meaning that if people aren't dying, the population is growing very, very rapidly. And so we have these vast numbers of generations of people born into this millennial kingdom who have a sin nature, who are mortals, but who have never experienced, at least apart from that first generation, who have never experienced the temptations of Satan, who have never experienced a time where they had to fear animals or where animals feared man, who have never experienced war in the way that, that, that we would talk about war today. They're still born with the sin nature of Adam, and the thing is, is that each one still has to make a decision about what they're going to do with Jesus. And we would be tempted to think, well, what do you mean? They have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. Jesus is there. He's God. He's ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. He's doing divine miracles. Who wouldn't accept him? Who wouldn't willingly submit his heart to him in this time? Well, I hope you know human nature better than to actually ask that question. We'll talk about that more as we go. Our text will answer this question in short order. Beginning in verse 7 of Revelation 20, the Bible says this, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. So the end of this age is initiated by Satan, that would be the millennial kingdom age, is initiated by Satan being loosed for a little season. And uh, we know that he was loosed for a little season from verse 3 of Revelation 20. Now remember what he is being loosed into into a world that has not known satanic temptation, deceit, or interference for 1,000 years. Into a world where the vast majority of the population has no concept of what the old world was like except as it's told by others. And we know how poorly humans are <coughs> or how poorly humans do at regarding and learning from history. We're really bad at that, aren't we? So imagine these children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and perhaps no one's dying, right? So they get to know their great-great-great-great-grandparents, and their great-great-great-great-grandparents are talking about what happened in that time. They're talking about what happened in the time of the 70th week. They're talking about what the world looked like prior to that 70th week. They're talking about the nature of satanic temptation and how men uh, were, were tempted to sin. Uh, they're talking uh, about the nature of war and millions upon millions of people dying of war and of plagues and of famines and of pestilence, things which simply do not exist in the millennium. And it's all so far away. It's all so theoretical. And there's something interesting that happens in the heart of a human when something is so far away. We just, we, we, we fail to understand its impact. You know, we read about the Holocaust. We read about the, the, the tremendous slaughters of people. But it's very difficult for the human heart to actually process the impact of something that we are so distant from. Not necessarily in time, it wasn't that long ago. But we're so distant from in, in manner of living and in, in conditions and in, in all of these elements of context and of truth. 
So to, to this end, remember that context. This is, this is the context. Satan is loosed into that kind of a world, into the kind of world where there, there is no knowledge of these things. And if it is, it's only in one generation and everyone else is just secondhand knowledge. And so we read in verse 8, and shall go, this is Satan, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So Satan thus goes about within this little season of which the Bible speaks to give him, and he deceives the nations of the whole earth. And specifically mentioned here is Gog and Magog. Last week in our time together, we focused upon the directions uh, or, or the, the dimensions of the, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and we presumed that temple to be during the time of the millennium. And I defended why it is we believed that it was a millennial kingdom temple and not, say, the tribulation temple, or most certainly a temple from history. Uh, and we studied through Ezekiel 40 to 48. Well, the two chapters just prior to that, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, speak of this man named Gog and a region called Magog. And Gog is the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal in the region of Magog. And you learn about this man and you learn about his exploits and you learn about his uh, hatred and contempt for for. for um, Israel, and that's what we're going to begin talking about a little bit more next week. <coughs> uh, excuse me. Now, there's much debate about when those events within Ezekiel 38 and 39 actually take place within the scope of history, and as I mentioned, we're going to speak to that next week. But today we have another thing to think about. Namely, that Gog and Magog are part of an innumerable number of people from all the nations which are in the four corners of the earth who gather together to battle against the Lord. Now, this is an interesting thought in itself, is it not? We read about the kingdom, and we read that there are no weapons. They beat their swords into plowshares. Indeed, while there is little doubt that fights have arisen among men, over the course of the thousand years, the human heart, even outside of satanic temptation, uh, would, would be predisposed to its own selfishness, its own pride, these sorts of things. And so no doubt that there were fights to some degree or another. They were always dealt swiftly, it would seem, and with absolute justice. Certainly nothing like a war as we know of war today. And yet we find that rooted in the human heart is still, it would seem, this knowledge of war, still this willingness to forge instruments of battle, still this desire to rebel, this desire to overcome authority. And this is just rooted all the way to the deepest part, the deepest seat of the heart of man, that heart of pride and rebellion. Now, there is much here that we don't know. We know that Satan is loose to deceive. We don't know what that's going to look like. We know that Satan is powerful. He's an extremely powerful being. We know that the nations will be deceived. We know that only the mortal men will be deceived. Indeed, those who have already experienced the first resurrection, those who have come, uh, who have died within the, the course of all of the time preceding the millennium, will be in resurrected bodies, will be uh, unable to be deceived because they will not bear the marks of the limitations of a body of sin. We do not know if those who have accepted, legitimately accepted the reign of Christ over them in this age will be indwelled by the Holy 
Holy Spirit. We might presume not because that was a unique thing to the church age uh, and we would not see the millennium as, as being a part of that church age. But we don't know the relationship of those who have truly accepted the Lord as, as their Savior and as their Master. Um, as it relates to can they be deceived? Can they be led astray into these temptations? Or are they like the elect during the 70th week of Daniel where um, they could, could not be deceived due to the ministry of God in their hearts. But as we will see in a moment, the nature of this deception will be to rebel against <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus. And to this end, we would fully expect that there are those who are taken in this deception and those who are of such a heart and mind that they are ready and indeed they are simply waiting for the opportunity to cast off the authority of Jesus Christ and to challenge him. And so Satan is loosed and there is finally this impetus to challenge the authority of Jesus Christ. And it is that of which we read as we continue in verse 9. The Bible says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Uh, this is perhaps, as far as the record is concerned, the shortest battle in history. The people of all nations of the earth, fomented by Satan's deceptions, likely very similar to Deceptions into the, uh, as they were in the days of Eve, where Satan, as a serpent, beguiled the woman and, and convinced her that God was afraid of her, that she would not surely die, that the problem is not the, the fruit itself, but the problem is that God does not want them to be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so they were drawn away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life into this deceit that they thought, if I cast off God, then I can be my own God. Most likely, there's there would be a similar vein of temptation because there's nothing new under the sun and the devil uh, will go with what works. It worked with Adam and Eve. It's worked ever since. Why would it stop working in the days of the millennium among those who are mortal, among those who still have a sin nature? So this innumerable number from every part of the world gather upon the breadth of the earth, again indicating just how many there are in number, and they surround what the Bible calls the camp of the saints, and the beloved city. Now we studied last week about the millennial land allotments that each tribe to the north and the south of the city would be given a allotment from the Mediterranean Sea over to some border and that there would be long kind of strip allotments uh, seven above and, and five below I think or, or maybe maybe flip that um, but th there were these allotments there. It's quite possible that it is this entire nation the entire region of Israel the entire millennial allotment here that they surround uh, as they don't just surround the, the, the beloved city, but they surround the camp of the saints. But this rebellion will not last long. The scriptures tell us that fire from God will fall out of heaven and devour them all. And so we see an end to the final rebellion against God. And it's very important that we learn about this final rebellion. We'll talk about it toward the end. But before we go there, we need to keep reading. We need to read about Jesus Christ's triumph. So this has been the physical triumph. The nations are destroyed. This is the final rebellion, the last hurrah. We continue reading in verse 10, and the Bible says this, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the devil had his final chance. He has deceived the nations again and gathered all the strength of, of the rebellion of mankind against the king who is called faithful and true, and he has failed. 
He is thus cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where he will never depart again, where he will remain there for eternity. Recall that, that, that Antichrist and false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire and brimstone 1,000 years previous. 1,000 years before, at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, they were the first two inhabitants of this lake of fire. And Satan, like them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The great enemy of God's people and of God himself will be put away forever in a place of perpetual torment. And to that end, this will be the greatest of days. It will be the day of utter and complete victory. But justice is not yet complete. And the verses that follow will perhaps impress upon us a much more bittersweet tone. Justice should definitely cause our hearts to soar as we think about God and His justice and how it's going to come to pass one day and Satan will be dealt with finally one day. But justice comes at the cost of those who have not believed, doesn't it? Those that have not believed will live out the consequences of their own choices. And we know what the scriptures say, that every man will be without excuse on that day. So let us not become hardened to what we are about to read, for it is the day that will perhaps be the most sorrowful day in all of history as well. We read this in verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. So John sees a great white throne. It is set for judgment. It is ready for judgment. And upon this throne is one who, whose face the earth fled and, and heaven fled away, excuse me, um, though they could not hide. And God himself sits on this throne to judge. So, so at the end of the millennium, God is now prepared to judge. And we read in verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Those that take part in this resurrection chose rather to gain the whole world than to lose their, uh, and to lose their own soul. And so now they are going to be judged by their works. They are going to stand before the Lord who will open the books, who will open the book of life, and they are going to be judged. So we continue reading in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Oh, I already read that one. Excuse me. <clears throat> um... What, what we have here is the term that we regularly call the resurrection of the just or of the unjust. Recall we talked about this a few weeks ago that there are going to be two resurrections. There is a resurrection of the living and then there is a resurrection of the dead. There is a resurrection of the just and there is a resurrection of the unjust. The first resurrection takes place prior to the millennial kingdom. That is the resurrection of all who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ from the church age, of all who have gone through the 70th week of Daniel uh, um, and have been martyred for the faith, and of all of those from the Old Testament who had placed their trust in the revealed word of God unto them. And so we find that all of these will be resurrected within the first resurrection. But the Bible said that there's going to be a second resurrection, and that is what we are reading about here. The, the resurrection of the dead unto damnation. And these have been waiting in a place called hell. It's a waiting place of torment and judgment, abiding their time until God was ready to, to judge the dead officially. 
The books are opened upon this day, containing all the works which each of us has performed, each of them, excuse me, has performed on this earth. And as with all of us, by our works we will be, we will stand, and by our works we will be condemned. There is not a man on judgment day, no matter how moral, whose works will not testify against him to some degree. Which is why the other book that is opened is so important. The Bible says that there were books that were opened and another book, which is the book of life. And this is very, very important. This book, the book of life, contains all the names of those who have believed the revealed word of God and so who have been placed under the finished work of Jesus Christ unto righteousness and salvation. And after the records of all the works of men, the this book will be opened, the book of truest consequence will be opened, the book of life will be opened, and all the works of man that were paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ will be recorded in the names of that book. But, the, but those who have failed, who have refused to acknowledge the finished work of Jesus Christ, their names will not be written in that book. And so the Bible tells us in verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to his works. Verses 14 and 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here, once again, we see the very black and white statements that we find all throughout the Scripture as it relates to heaven. It is not about how good we can get. It's not about how much money we have. It's not about how much we can work in our own righteousness. Whosoever's name is found written in the book of life, he will not be cast in the lake of fire. All those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. So death and hell are delivered up. Uh, they deliver up the dead that is in them, meaning the, uh, that beyond only the nations who rebelled against them and the, uh, against the Lord in these final days, uh, we find as well that those who had rejected the word of the Lord from every generation will be delivered up. And those who stand before this, this, uh, the Lord on this day will not hear those words which we long to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but will rather suffer loss and hear, those, uh, and hear that word guilty. The second death, a second separation is what we're talking about. Not the separation of the material from the immaterial, that's the first death. The first death, our body fails, it dies, and the immaterial part of us is separated from our material body. The second death is a spiritual separation through and through. An eternal spiritual separation from the life and from the life, light of life, which is the presence of God. Forever removed from fellowship with God. Forever removed from the light of God. Forever burning in a lake of fire and brimstone in eternal conscious torment, in eternal separation from God. That is the second death. It is separation in its purest form, which is separation from the life of God, separation from even that, that afterglow of the life of God that pagans live in throughout history. And why? Because their names were not found written in the book of life. Because they did not believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. They rejected the good word of God. They rejected the invitation unto mercy. And now they must suffer the consequences. Justice is done. And justice is a good thing. But I called this bittersweet because this justice will be done upon many whom we know. Friends, neighbors, perhaps family members. Those who we know 
who have many positive attributes and yet have decided against following Christ. It is enough for me to wonder. In chapter 21, verse 4, we won't be there for a few weeks, but if you've got your Bible open and you want to look ahead, just a couple of verses. In chapter 21, verse 4, the Bible says, And God shall wipe all tears from their eyes. And I wonder if a large portion of that weeping on that day will not necessarily be weeping over our own sin. Our own sin is a terrible thing, but I mean, more or less, we will have been in our resurrected bodies for 1,000 years at this point, right? We will have already been living out the fruit of the glorious resurrection for 1,000 years. So then where are these tears coming from? Well, perhaps these tears are primarily the tears for those who will not be there. Certainly, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no, no pain. Those former things are passed away. All of that's a part of the implication there. But perhaps some of those tears are the sorrow that accompanies the living as they watch those who they love experience the second death. And with this we apply this morning. Two points only. Point number one, man's problem is internal, not external. Man's problem is internal, not external. If you do write down these points, I might add a word there. Man's primary problem, uh, man's deepest problem perhaps, some sort of modifier there, is internal, not external. Man has plenty of external problems, and we don't want to minimize those. We'll talk about that. But our primary problem, folks, is internal, not external. Very early on in our study, we walked through a grand overview of events as it relates to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And not just the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, but really why the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ matters. Events as they relate to the Bible. Events as we understand them within this framework that we typically call dispensationalism. And I've referenced this several times now because it is truly very important to understand why God does the things He does to understand this system. Why does God cause Satan to be bound rather than judge him before the millennium? Why does God allow Satan right now to be wandering about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Why does God give Satan another chance at the end of the millennium to come back and to deceive the nations one more time? What would cause God to do that? If God is so great, if God is so powerful, if none can resist him, then why is Satan able to resist him? Why is he freed to be able to do so? And this is certainly not a new question by any sense of the imagination. It's a question that theologians have spoken of for centuries now. And in our overview, we traced these events from the beginning of mankind through. If you recall this semi-cluttered chart that I gave you, uh, that I built upon as we went, the yellow uh, um, being delineators, the, the kind of the, the red there <coughs> being Satan's kingdom and the white being God's kingdom as they live in conflict throughout history. And we talked about how in each age, in each dispensation as we call them, we can see the definitive set of circumstances culminating in a dramatic event that serves to threaten God's kingdom program through the failure of mankind himself. 
that mankind fails and mankind's failure has threatened the kingdom program of God that the kingdom program of God might fail. And of course, if the kingdom program of God might fail, then God has failed. And if God has failed, he is not God. And Satan has a right to contend for that throne. But then what we see in each one of these dispensations is that God steps up. He, he, in his sovereignty, he, he steps into history and he does something dramatic in order to thwart the purposes of Satan and in order to, as it were, reset or renew mankind and set him back on the path toward a relationship with him. And the whole story goes back, of course, to the fall of Satan, that exalted cherub who sought to challenge God's authority and to establish his own kingdom. God and his divine sovereignty allowed this attempt and Satan knew he needed subjects. He needed a dominion if he is going to compete against God's kingdom. So in that age of innocence, Satan tempts Eve and she is deceived and Adam, Adam rebels and he causes the human race through their own desire to rebel he tempts them into falling, joining his kingdom, getting on Satan's side. Just when it seemed that Satan had prevailed, indeed Adam and Eve have fallen from grace. They have stepped outside of the bounds of the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of Satan. They have chosen for themselves a ruler who would promise them that they could be as gods, knowing good and evil, and not this ruler who has promised to love and to provide and to protect and to care for them, if only they will submit to him. And so they follow Satan rather than God, and then God's grace steps in. And fundamentally changes the function of the universe to justly deal with man's sin while beginning a course of redemption. God promises on, at this time a way for man to be redeemed, that he is going to step into history, that he is going to redeem mankind unto himself by his own merit, by his own effort. But God's kingdom must last until this comes to fruition. God's kingdom must last if God's kingdom fails and falters before in time, in the process of time, this can come to fruition, then God has failed. To this end, Satan will be busy throughout the Old Testament and New, seeking to thwart God's plan. And this first major effort is in the next age of man, what we often call the age of conscience. Man calls upon the name of the Lord, but demonic intervention and tremendous evil strip men of faith until nearly the entire world is doing that which is right in their own eyes save eight persons. And that would be Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Everyone else has apostatized. Everyone else is reprobate. But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so God, as it were, resets the world through a tremendous catastrophe that, again, fundamentally alters the topography of the world. As he judges the world for their sin, saving only Noah and his family, and of course, two of every beast and seven of every clean beast on the ark of mercy. Had all faith failed from the earth, Satan's kingdom would indeed have prevailed. But God intervened. Man's failure, God intervened in man's failure, and faith continued. Enter the time of government when God ordains an institution to be man's check against evil. 
that an institution will arise whereby if man sheds blood, then by man his blood should be shed. Whereby thus we have laws that are put in place that identify the laws of God and conform themselves to the laws of God. And there's a human authority system in place that is ordained by God specifically in order to be a check against man's great evil. Only then arises Nimrod, right? whose kingdom began at Babel, a man who decided to make himself a name and to call the earth to make themselves a name, to join forces in rebellion against God, thus exalting themselves to be gods. Once again, Satan's kingdom. This is Satan's, this, this is Satan's teaching. This is Satan's doctrine. And it threatens God's dominion. And so God again steps into history at the point of man's failure. Do you see how every age in history ends with man's failure? At the point of man's failure, once again, God steps into history and he confounds the languages so that man can no longer talk to one another and now we become too busy fighting one another in order to unite against God. Satan is, however, still at work in the hearts of men and in the world, seeking to thwart God's purposes. If Satan can cause any of God's promises to fail, if he can cause faith to fail from the earth, then Satan and his kingdom are victorious. Enter the time that we call the time of promise. When God chooses a man of faith named Abram, to be the family through whom his program would persist. Abram bears Isaac, who bears Jacob, who bears 12 sons in the land of promise. And God connects this land not only to this family, but to the future of his kingdom. A famine causes the family to leave the land for a time. But then Satan steps in and causes the family to fall under tremendous bondage in, this, in the nation of Egypt. Once again, God must divinely step in to redeem this family unto himself. He has to divinely step into history to deal with man's failures to redeem this family back to himself in order that his promises might remain secure. And thus God gives them the law. And we move into this time of the law when God is working through a specific family which became a specific nation <coughs> which we know of as the nation of Israel. Man's innocence had failed through his deceits of sin. Now man has a sin nature. Man's conscience failed as a means of controlling that sin nature. So man did what was right in his own eyes, so God gave them government. Government failed as a means of controlling that sin nature. As man just sought power through government. So now God gives man his law directly. His governing system. God enumerates point for point what it takes to please a holy and a righteous God. And God gives any and every incentive possible to this family that they would follow His law. If you do these things, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. And for the next 1,500 years of history, we find this record of any and every type of disobedience, don't we? of rebellion after rebellion, of a cycle of apostasy, of evil, of rejection of God's word. 1,500 years that manifest the tremendous failure of mankind to live up even when God explicitly says, this is what I expect of you. Even when presented with the perfect law that would render its followers guiltless before God, and when every reason and opportunity to fulfill that law exists, man's sinful heart is still predisposed to rebel. See, because the problem is not the advantages or the disadvantages we have. That nation, Israel, was tremendously advantaged, but it didn't help them if they don't submit their rebellious heart. We've got a heart problem, don't we? Mankind has a heart problem. Enter Christ. Christ comes into this world to fulfill God's law. 
with his atoning death and victorious resurrection. This is the day that Satan's kingdom was truly defeated. This was the day that the, that, that the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. Because the solution to the problem of sin, which God saw through Adam and Eve, which God promised to give unto them, which to this point in the operation up until Christ had not been fulfilled, Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus changes all of that. Well, Israel rejects Jesus as their king, however. He still pays the debt. He still raises from the dead. But Israel says, we will not have this man to be king over us. So God, thus, because of the failure of man, once again initiates a new system. The failure of man means God steps into history. He redeems mankind through Jesus Christ. And then he opens the floodgates for all men to enter into this covenant into this salvation. God's program and promises to Israel are put on pause. They're not abolished, but they're set aside for a time. And God instead initiates a new program with a new group of people made up of every nation and tongue. And there's a, a very dramatic difference, a very fundamental difference between the way God created the first nation of promise and the way he creates this second and very distinct nation of promise. Unlike national Israel, who were born physically into a nation and then entered into the covenant and, and then had to enter into faith as they grew, this new group called the church would comprise only those who have already exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who are already Believers, And so every person born again into the church would already believe the word of God. And so the church body, as, as opposed to any other time in history, is in itself victorious. This is very different from the other dispensations in that in all the, of the other dispensations, there's a failure of man. Well, we see as we study the scriptures that man is getting worse and worse, right? That... History is going to get worse and worse as man rejects the testimony of the church and as the church uh, falls and spirals into lukewarmness. But simultaneously, every person who's in the church is already more than a conqueror through him who loves us, right? So we have a little bit of a difference there. And this is the age, of course, where we are in today, where God gives to those who believe a new heart, the indwelling Holy Spirit, releases them from guilt and the shame of sin, the power to overcome sin nature, which to this point has ravaged the human experience, is given to them. But most in this world will not accept this gift. And man's sin nature operates within this age of grace in a very powerful way, stunted in history time and again only by the working of the Holy Spirit of God through His church unto revivals. Well, that age will end at some point. This age will end at some point. The revivals will cease. The church will become ineffective. We might call it a, a failure in one sense. Not a failure to those who are within the church, but just the dwindling numbers of the church to where the church becomes ineffective as people have rejected the church for, for the world that is. And this, of course, ushers in the 70th week of Daniel, a reinitiation of God's program with Israel to finish the job that he had begun, to finish the job of calling them unto repentance so that he might rule and reign over them as he has always promised to do. Because if God cannot, if he does not rule and reign over them as he has promised to do, then his kingdom program has failed. He is a failure, and he is not God, and Satan wins. Which leads us into the millennial kingdom, where God will rule over this nation as he promised, 
the, the nation of Israel. They will accept him. They will receive him as, as, as their Messiah. He will rule and reign over them. The other nations of the world will be ruled and reign over as well. That's what we've talked about the last several weeks. And there will be, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, no devil to deceive, no poverty to afflict, no corruption to hold people down uh, or to bring about injustice. The rulers within this world will be those who have already taken part in the first resurrection. They will be people who do not have a sin nature. We will not be swayed by corruption. We will not be swayed by, by respecting of persons because we, in and of ourselves, will have that new nature, will have that resurrected nature, and so we find that within this time there will be none of those things which plague society today. Those things which we all hate. Those things which we all despise. Those things which we would seek any number of, of ways to, to, to overcome or to mitigate in this life. A seemingly perfect world will finally be achieved. You know, that's, what, that, that, that's, that's a gr- great amount of debate today over that, isn't there? The whole point of the progressive agenda as it is attempting to take over this country is this idea that we are going to try to create this perfect order where there is no war, where there is peace, where there is no poverty, where there is no injustice because of class differences, because of race, racism, because of opportunity disparities, because of health problems. And that's really what, what not, not just the progressive agenda, that's what we all want, right? That's what we all want. I would sure love to have a world without war, a world without racial disparities, a world without economic disparities. I would sure love to see a world where there's no poverty. I would sure love to see a world where healthcare is available, excellent healthcare is available to everyone. I would love that. But here's the problem. The problem is that on the authority of the word of God, man's sin nature simply will not allow that to happen. As long as man's sin nature exists, that perfect world cannot exist. As long as man is ruling over himself, that perfect world cannot exist. Maybe I should say it that way because there will be a time where man will have a sin nature but no devil in Jesus will be ruling and reigning with the rod of iron where it will exist. Sin nature is still there. But what the, the point is this. The disparity between those that, that I just spoke of and, and, and the agenda to see these things come to pass on this earth in the ways that they're attempting and, and, and our desires to see those things come to pass as well is that they truly and honestly believe that the heart of man is good so man can bring these things about on their own. And we truly and honestly know from the testimony of the one who created this world that until man's sin nature is dealt with, that utopia is out of our reach. Now, we don't, it doesn't mean we don't strive for it within the bounds of God's laws. But we understand that there's a fundamental flaw in the heart of man that until that flaw is dealt with, everything else is, is, is going it's just, it's just to keep cycling over and over and over again. Corruption cannot be weeded out by morality. Poverty cannot be weeded out by throwing uh, economic solutions at the problem. 
With every fiber of our being, we would desire to solve these problems, but mankind simply does not have the capacity in himself to fully solve them. Because man's problem is not an external problem. Our primary problem is an internal problem. And until that internal problem gets solved, the external problems cannot go away. And this is the essence of the lesson of the millennium. A perfect world is achieved through Jesus. He rules and reigns with a rod of iron. There is no more poverty. There is no more economic disparity. There is no more racial inequality. There is no more um, a lack of opportunity. There is no more war. There's no famine. There's no pestilence. We would presume that there's no illness. We don't, we, we can't, you will not be able to look at anyone in this world and say, well, they just didn't have enough of a, an advantage to start out with. You would think that in this perfect world, all would be well. Jesus physically present, bringing near perfection to the world, that the world would be content with this. But they aren't. They aren't. Because the heart of man still aches to rebel. And this is the problem. The millennium is not going to solve the problem because the heart of man, the sin nature of man still exists. And that's what the millennium intends to show us. That even in a perfect world, even in that environment that people are, are preaching, we just need to, if, if we could just have enough education, if we could just have enough redistribution, if we could just have enough, uh, if we could just uh, destroy all of our nuclear weapons, if we could just do all of these things, then, then wars would stop and crime would stop and all of these things would stop. Look, no they won't. Because wars and crimes and evils and corruption and man always seeking to get ahead by putting his boot on the neck of another man and stepping over him and crushing him in the process, this is not an educational disparity issue. This is not an economic disparity issue. This is a sin nature issue. And as long as the sin nature exists, this is always going to exist in our world. Simply put, no amount of external change can change the heart of a man. So after 1,000 years of peace and prosperity, Satan is loosed. And he immediately taps into the sinful heart of mankind. He immediately taps into that rebellion. And what we find is that even in this perfect environment, the heart of man will still not be willing to accept the Lord as their authority. There's no excuse not to accept him as Lord. He's ruling in justice. He's brought about perfection and peace. But what a man truly wants in his heart is actually not peace. Did you know that? What a man truly wants in his heart is not prosperity for all. What a man truly wants in his heart is to be like God. He wants power. He wants rebellion. He wants to be his own God. And he will not accept peace. He will not accept prosperity on the condition of submission in his natural heart. The only place where peace and prosperity can be accepted in submission is if our heart is changed, if we are changed from the inside out. And this will prove once and for all that our environment is not a problem. It's a catalyst. Your environment can, simply be, can certainly be a problem, but it's not the problem. It can be a problem. We need to admit that, right? We need to admit that there are people who are born into circumstances that are extremely difficult and that that does chart a path for them. They're making choices. But a lot of those people I sit across with in the jail, the things they had to see as a child, the things they had to experience, 
the things that they've gone through. It's little wonder they are where they are. Now, they made choices. They made choices. We're not saying they didn't. They're there for choices. But our environment does affect us, does it not? It, it does. Proving, however, that our environment is not the problem. The problem is the heart of man. <coughs> our upbringing is not the problem. It's a problem. It's a catalyst. It's not the problem. Once and for all, Satan is not even the problem, is it? Satan is a catalyst. He, he deceives. He tempts. But he's not the problem because even when Satan is gone for a thousand years, the heart of man is still itching to rebel. The problem is the heart of man and the only solution is to be changed from the inside out. To that end, brethren, don't be fooled by the past 200 years of popular theory as it relates to culture, as it relates to government, and as it relates to psychology. Don't be fooled by the psychologists that insist that we are just animals, entirely a product of our environment. Bertram's dogs, right? Uh, 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 Pavlov's dogs, I mean. Uh, 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 and, and the experiment of Pavlov's dogs. And nature uh, versus nurture. And the idea that we are, we are just a product of nurture rather than of nature. Don't be fooled by the socialists and the communist insistence that the problems of this world can be laid completely at the feet of the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, the rich, the elite, the newer term being the 1%. And if only we could have all of their money, all of our problems would solve themselves. Don't be fooled by that. It's a lie. It's the same thing that the devil's been saying for thousands of years. It's a lie. Don't be fooled by the lie that if people just had enough education and health care and a place to live, then there would be no more crime, no more social ill. Don't be fooled by the idea that if we just go into the Middle East and build a bunch of hospitals and schools for these radical Islamists, that they're just going to lay down their weapons and walk away. That is insanity. Because the heart of man is wicked. It doesn't work that way. But if you believe that man is naturally good, if you believe that we are only a product of our environment, then all of that makes sense to you, right? Which is why our previous administration made the choices they did. Try and send money and goods and stuff to these people who only turned around to use it to kill us. To kill our soldiers. Don't be fooled by the insistence that social problems will solve themselves if we just throw enough money at them. Everywhere these policies have been tried, they've failed. And the, the typical statement is, yes, but they've never been tried properly. They failed because it's never been pure enough. It's never been done properly yet. That's why communism, far from being a utopia, can be credited with the deaths of well over 85 million people within the last 100 years alone. 85 million people. It's just because we haven't tried it enough yet, right? It's just because no one's tried it in purity yet. just because there haven't been enough rich people's money to give, put into the pockets of the common man or to put into education or to healthcare. And if we just had that, 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 that sort of a society, then it would all solve itself. No, it won't. Not until, not until the heart of man is changed can these problems be solved. It's all a lie. It's the natural outworking of a society, 
of a culture, of a worldview that utterly rejects the most fundamental teaching of the Word of God, that man is not naturally good. He is naturally evil. He is predisposed to evil because we have a sin nature. That we have a sin nature born into us that cannot be conditioned out of us by our environment or by some social or economic means. That the heart of man is prone and always will be prone to corruption. So that Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That the problems of this world are not actually a product of lack of capital or lack of education or lack of access to things. It's not rooted in the problem of religion, religious zeal, or, or the lack of religious zeal. It's rooted in the heart of man which is sinful by its nature. And if that is the case, then the only solution that will work is a change to our nature. And there's only one Savior in all of human history, all religious history, who has ever come promising a change in your nature. Only one. Who has ever come calling men to stop trying to do something for himself externally and instead humble himself and submit himself to God to do something within him internally so that we might change from the inside out rather than the outside in. And the only spiritual teacher who has ever promised such a new life, who has ever promised such a new identity, who has ever promised this fundamental inside out change and eternal life and then validated that promise by raising from the dead unto that life eternal is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no other God. There is no other Savior. There is no other truth claim that promises what He promised. An inside-out change, a reformation, a fundamental transformation of your character, of your identity. And it is for this reason that Orthodox Christians have characteristically been so hostile to the social solutions of redistributionism, the philosophy of nurture above nature, the conviction that man is only an animal rooted in stimulus and response, the philosophy that man can ascend to something more, what Friedrich Nietzsche called the superman, what Adolf Hitler called the master race. We reject these things because the Bible tells us that man cannot produce this in himself, that only God can produce it in them, and God has chosen to do so only through His Son, Jesus Christ. In the millennium, all of those problems, environment and poverty, they will, they will cease to exist. But man will be just as ready to rebel against the loving hand of God as man ever was. So the problem is the heart of man. Man's problem is not primarily an, inter, uh, an external problem. Man's problem is primarily internal. Second and final point. Few there be who will accept the solution to his problem. Today we read of the ultimate victory over sin and death and hell. We read of the final defeat of the great enemy of God's people and of God himself, Satan. But we read also of the casualties of this angelic conflict. That at the end of all things, not only will many souls be in the lake of fire, but on the authority of God's word, most souls will be in the lake of fire. And that, not because they didn't have a chance, 
but rather because they love this present world too much to yield it for the promise of the world that is to come. So Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight, that word straight there, not meaning like a straight line, but like tight, like, a bearing, like the bearing straight, constrained. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The way that leads to destruction is very broad, and the way that leads to life is very narrow, and there are few, relatively speaking, who will ever find it. And this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. It is, in fact, the very purpose for the church's existence, that we may shine the light into the darkness, that if by chance my life, my testimony, my proclamation might just lead one person to see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and to come to that light and to be redeemed from the damnation that is to come. And this leads us to two inevitable conclusions which we have come to several times throughout our series. Number one, we conclude that it is imperative that each of us follows the instruction of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where he says this, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Are you in the faith? Examine yourself. As you sit here today, as you hear this, as you hear about Jesus Christ being the only way, as you hear that gospel, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, as He ministers to your heart, as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Have you accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you not just aware, but have you fully accepted for yourself those truths that you are a sinner, that you as a sinner have been separated from God, that sinners are doomed to an eternity of separation from God in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire, that Jesus died on the cross and bore your sin, that he was buried and three days later he rose again in victory over sin, in victory over death, in victory over the grave, and he did that to you so that if you will repent of your dead works and put your faith in God, put your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Then prove yourself. Examine yourself. Prove yourself. So first examine. Do you believe that? Second, prove it. How do you know you believe it? We talked this morning about James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Do you bear the marks of salvation? Do you experience conviction for sin? The Bible says believers do. Do you experience chastening if you're living in rebellion? The Bible says believers do. Do you bear the fruit of the Spirit as you walk in the Spirit? The Bible says believers do. Do you love the brethren? The Bible says believers do. Do you understand the spiritual concepts of God's word? When you are taught of God's word, does the spiritual make sense to you? The Bible says believers understand the spiritual. Are you in the faith? Is Jesus Christ in you? Or are you a reprobate? Are you one? Once again, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, who will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or will you hear those words, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity? I never knew you. Are you in the faith? Examine yourself. Prove yourself.
This day is coming. You cannot fix yourself externally. There's no amount of external reformation that can get you into heaven. There's not going to be a list of good and bad works. And if your good outweighs your bad, you're going to make it in. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what the person sitting next to you thinks. It doesn't matter whether you've played a good game. It doesn't matter whether it's going to be embarrassing. It doesn't matter. This is, this is an eternal, this is your eternal soul. Are you in the faith? Once you are, our second point, don't just sit back because you've got work to do. Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now every person that stands before God on Judgment Day will be there for his own choices. We know that, right? Romans chapter 1 says, All men are without excuse. And you know what? If I don't study for a test and I do a bad job, it's entirely my fault. Isn't it? But what if, what if someone came alongside me? What if someone came alongside me and helped me study and encouraged me to make the right choices and to be diligent? It's still my decision, right, as to whether or not I'm going to study. And instead of doing a bad job on the test, I do a good job on the test. Every person who stands condemned one day will be there because they have not believed on the name of Jesus Christ. They will stand uh, in, their, in their own shame, having no one to blame but themselves. But what if, just what if, you were able to say a few words, or many words? What if, what if the testimony of the gospel in your life, through your integrity, through your honesty, through your kindness, what if the testimony of the gospel through that tract, what if the testimony of the gospel through that, that, that simple conversation, what if those words might just help a searching soul with the choice that they are planning on making? And your testimony, your love for the Lord, your faith, your passion, your zeal, your boldness to share the gospel makes all the difference to Him. What if? Is that not worth your time? Your effort? Your love? Your devotion? Anything and everything that God might ask of you? Is that not why we exist? Is that not what we were created in Christ Jesus to do? Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should live in them. The day of which we just read will be a day of victory for God's people, but it will also be a day of, of, of tremendous sorrow in human history. And would to God that on this day each of us will first and foremost examine us, ourselves, whether or not we be in the faith. And second, would to God that everyone in this room might be able to rejoice not just in their own salvation, but rejoice in those who have, through their influence, through their testimony, through the good word of God out of, out of your mouth, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior by the influence of you. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.